another evening was about to pass by, without much in the way of excitement. The earth would set behind the lunar horizon as it was prone to. Clearly busy. Hang on. Yeah? Lunar horizon? Yeah, lunar horizon. The earth doesn't orbit the moon. Yeah, obviously. It's not set anywhere. Yeah, well, this is the future, so... I don't know, I guess they've made it work. They've made it work. Yeah. Okay. The earth would set behind the lunar horizon, clearly visible in a sky that had never known a cloud. The interdome tubes would become full of commuters, making their way from the various employment domes to whatever location or activity was next. This could be exercise, nutrition for fun, entertainment, nutrition for living, or socialising, or any other form of deliberate time expenditure. These were evening killers, constructions meant to consume the time between work and sleep. For Raquel Huang Smith, who would choose to kill her evening with exercise for a change, this cycle of moon life was becoming too much. It was a life whose rhyme and rhythm was dictated by a culture of orbits and their fixed mathematics. No matter what you did with your life, be it harvesting Hubei Brussels sprouts or playing zero-gravity drums in a Mao That's What He Calls Music tribute band, it seemed to be underwritten by a sense of factory repetition. In recent weeks, Raquel had become acutely aware of this. Every day she'd shut down her workstation at the Moon Accountancy firm, where she worked, apply just enough overpriced far-side gravitational lipstick to elongate her face, and float over to designated social space 3 for an evening of chatter and something we'll call uh, idle flirtation. It hadn't got her very far, although she wouldn't be able to say exactly where it was she was trying to get. So, so now, after shutting down her workstation, instead of reaching into her desk pouch for the lipstick, she'd grab her gravity enhancement gym kit and head across to the Zhao Witness Fitness Dome. Raquel, or Raki to her friends, was about to check in for a gravitationally assisted weight session in an attempt to break out of the graveyard orbit that her life had become. In the 600 years since moon suburbanization had begun, the effects of a decreased gravitational pull had changed the human body. While those remaining on Earth still had to lift everything with its full weight, and were therefore still totally jacked, those on the moon had become thin and long as a result of never having to lift anything. If you were to put a mooner on Earth and task them with brushing their teeth, they wouldn't be able to lift a toothbrush or even a toothpaste. Of course, before they'd even got that far across the bathroom, they'd have been crushed to a bloody pulp by full gravity. Picture, if you will, or if you want, okay, a clean white tiled floor, okay, and then a tin of chopped tomatoes, and then you run a steamroller over that. Blimey. Yeah. Mm? Uh, the mm. Um, what? Don't worry about it. Yeah, but I am worried about you it. You don't need to be worried about it. Just keep going. This change. This change had come to be venerated in the lunar media. Adverts for the gravitational lipstick Racky wasn't putting on tonight featured long, slender models with absolutely no muscle mass. The point of that lipstick in itself was to apply a slight gravity to the wearer's lips in order to pull them downwards and make the face appear longer. Advertised along similar lines was Sinophidich Lavender, the single most popular single malt scotch imported from the Purple Planet. Did you mean Purple Planet? No, I'm talking about Sinophidich Lavender which was sipped on hollow billboards by stretched stick figure models in one, two, three, four, five, sometimes six, but never seven-piece moon playboy suits. So, if long and slim were the sexy new thing, and muscles were out, then why was Racky so keen to lift weights in gravity? Well, 
To put it simply, she'd met someone. A few days ago, when her life was still enslaved by its orbital A few days ago, when her life was still enslaved by its A few days ago, when her life was still enslaved by its orbital routine, she got home after a night of chatting and what we'll call idle flirtation, and had done what she always did: swipe through crater data. The Lunar database dating and dating-based data harvesting app. Usually, Raki did this as an attempt to make up for a night of in-person failure, hoping that the mighty algorithm would churn up someone different, someone who she'd never meet in the flesh. Moon residents were all very similar in terms of their activities, and even more so in terms of their worldview, which was usually half a blue ball partially covered by white wisps. And Raki disagreed. No, no, Lunar worldview is pretty uniform. But she did find it hard to really connect with anyone until a few days ago. That is when Raki had enlarged the search radius on her Crater Data account all the way to Earth. How on Moon had How on Moon had such a thing been allowed? Was it some sort of brief glitch in the system, or a supposedly one-time payment of five crescents splurty splur? Was it desperation? No. Well, well maybe. Maybe. Whatever it was. The main thing to take away is that a new profile had appeared. Michael. 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 Who? Michael. Are you Michael? Michael. Are you Michael? Michael. 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 Who? Michael. 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 The guy Racky had met was called Michael. Was it not Mitchell? I heard Michael. And Michael was heavily muscled, at least by Moon standards. He had medium-length hair of chestnut brown and dark eyes that were set under a gravitationally heavy brow. His face was short and square, as most Earthers tended to be. He was hideous, but again, this was only by Moon standards, and no one would ever say it out loud anyway, due to a Moon-specific verbal primness that had also begun to grate on Racky's nerves. She'd been talking to Michael for a day or two. Of course, there was a slight language barrier. But battling through it, Raki came to find herself a little more than interested. His Earth mannerisms were disgusting. His choice of words was grotesque, but he seemed honest and alive. He was exciting, to put it in objective terms, and to Raki, by comparison, the moon seemed overbearingly sterile. He could talk about things beyond employment or the latest episode of Moon Infrastructure Truckers. Is that the one with yeah, Matt, Le- Matt LeBlanc's clone? Oh, season one was sick. He described the different kinds of cloud that were still visible on Earth, and while the last cumulonimbus had been hunted 75 years ago, Michael could still describe the dappling of the high-flying cirrocumulus, or the glacial patches of the outer stratus. During one of their long late-night chats, he even described an endangered nimbostratus. It was dark and brooding, and rolled ever closer, threatening, with every passing minute, to burst. Hey. She hit it well, but something about the threat of rain drove Racky wild. She'd never experienced it herself, being from a well-established moon family. In fact, she'd never even seen it. Neither had she seen wind or sun, hail or snow. 
She'd only ever seen the emulated weather they had in the Total Honesty History Dome, and that had been when she was a kid. Before setting off for her gravity weight session, Raki scrolled back through previous matches on crater data, forgotten shells of conversations, anodyne opening lines, and increasingly desultory chats. Not one of them had really made her feel something, like Michael had, and she couldn't hold back a sad smile as she flicked through the creme de la creme of lunar flirtation. Hey baby, did it cost much? When you express shuttled in from heaven? Hey, did you hear? They finally put a man on the moon. Did you just come out of Steamport 7? Because you're hot. Michael didn't go in for any of that. He was tender and genuine and shy in a way that suggested he thought there were actual stakes involved in his and Raki's involvement. He didn't suffer from the chronic lack of care that the Loonscape's controlled humdrum had inflicted upon most moonsuiters. His first message, at which Raki now found herself looking, despite having moved their conversation off-app, simply said, Hey. 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 Which she put down to some sort of signal failure on the Earth-to-Moon communication lines. He was a couple of years younger than she was, something that Raki found oddly alluring. She wasn't sure how Earth aging worked, or what the effects of real weather and full gravity would be. But it didn't really matter. The numerical difference made Michael impetuous, maybe even a bit naive. But to Raki, this just came across as an openness, or a willingness to give things a try that was largely absent from her existing circles. So, so now, as she left the moon accountancy firm and headed towards the fitness dome, she wore an easy smile, courtesy of her gravity lipstick-free lips. Now it had been a week since Raki and Michael had first connected. For about a day, her usual companions in the field of chatter and idle flirtation had tried to coax her back to DSS3 before moving on without her. It had been a minimal effort, and she might have considered it, if only they'd suggested something different, like an evening class on botanical insult crafting led by the much fetid petridish offspring creature of Gordon Ramsay and Alan Titchmarsh. Or DSS6, where the rowdier moon residents gathered to talk about the widths of their holographic fineliners and ask questions like, how overrated was historical bastard Charles Saatchi's colour palette? But no such adventure was on offer, as Raki's chat flirt companions predictably chose to stay in their comfort zone. By way of a response, she would choose to move further out of her own. Things with Michael had grown in intensity. Their conversations had grown deeper. He expressed such a genuine interest in not just her life, but in who she really was. He wanted to know her, and she found herself wanting nothing more than to know him. Occasionally, she'd find this to be a nearly inescapable pit of desire, out of which the only ladder seemed to be a session down the gravity weights gym, where the physical exertion now represented a forced diversion of energy from her spinning mind to her increasingly muscular body. In fact, the frequency of the occasional desire spiralings meant that Raki was now considerably more muscular than the average moon resident. She'd also abandoned nutrition for fun and had turned exclusively to nutrition for living. 
It was incredible what a diet free from taste enhancers and historical nostalgic texture implants could do to develop a body in such a short amount of time. As in any society, the moon had its muscle-hungry meatheads, and Raki was still a long way off their level. But she developed enough bicep and shoulder mass to scare off any suitors of common taste. Did this upset her? It was actually the opposite. Only in the beginning had the increase in eyes averted been dispiriting, and before long, Raki had made her peace with it. Moon opinion, be it that of a noodle arm noodle arm noir constructor, or of an overly stardusted dark side bun baker, simply meant nothing anymore. To Raki, all that mattered was what Michael thought. She was empowered and freed by his attention, while also being held hostage by his powerful grip. It was a paradoxical form of liberty, and it was one in which Raki was fully embroiled. And now, it was almost a month since first contact. Could she go through with it? A one-way ticket to Earth cost about as much as her last social outing. Two semi-bubular cocktails and a micro-shot of slow-motion, motion-slowing gin. It was cheap, obviously. Not many people wanted to travel to Earth with a return ticket, let alone without one. But she needed to see him in the raw pink and muscle bulge abundant flesh. They'd been talking about it for at least a week, alongside basically nothing else. Longing transmitted. A text based back and forth across the vacuum in which their frustrations were robbed of sound, themselves frustrated, to ping silently across the distance of space. This physical aspect was relatively new to Raki. Moon courting was, yet again, a particularly sterile phenomenon. A specific wording that lends nothing to romantic whimsy. Despite the technological riches of lunar living, society had suffered a number of regresses, including that of the openness of sexuality. If Earth, in its day, had been criticized by some as being sexually obsessed, then the moon had swung with childish zeal in the opposite direction. Nuance be damned, lunar society frowned on desire and forbade the flesh. This wouldn't be so bad, Raki had once thought, if it wasn't so painfully honest. Unlike the churches of old earth, this disdain for sexuality wasn't just a front. Moon prudishness wasn't just a cover. It wasn't undermined by a secret and scandalously exposed world of abuse and excess. Oh no. The moon was irritatingly genuine where its principles were concerned. With the newly cast shadow of Michael's distant body heavy on her thoughts, Raki realized that what she wanted more than anything was a bit of imperfection. She craved a wisp of hypocrisy, or even a brief lapse in integrity. Earth had been rife with the stuff, and in their mad scramble for progress, the Mooners had left it all behind. And now just as the old Earthers had looked back to the greenery of the pre-industrial era for a nostalgic warmth, Raki was now looking back to the passion-driven human filth of mankind's pre-lunar abode. Was she the first to do this? Statistically, this seemed unlikely to be the case, but she'd never met anyone else who'd even come close to expressing such a sentiment. If she was honest though, since Michael entered the frame, 
Raki had begun to feel as if she'd never really met anybody anyway. She'd spoken to people. She'd listened to their opinions and stories. She'd even shared evenings and nutrition essentials. But she hadn't ever known anyone as she'd come to know Michael. As these ruminations swept through her head, coming and going like the circular waves of a centrifugal e-surfing cylinder pool, Raki found herself gazing at the hollerboard of the Project O Travel Travel Agency, onto which was pinned a poster for one-way Earth tickets. So low in standing and status was the one-way Earth ticket that not only was it still printed, it was still printed on paper. Paper? Like, yeah. Paper from... Yes, paper from trees. Aside from this very particular travel document, only Starbucks's Epsilon Ursa Majoris Box membership card and the American passport were still printed on tree paper. The bottom three rungs in the moon's completely pointless ladder of shame. Zero gravity. <laughs> it would be endlessly embarrassing to buy any of them. This was just a fact, and one that Raki was all too aware of. But her mortification would only last so long, and then she'd be on Earth, with Michael. There, she'd be protected from the lambasts by his arms, and shielded from the critiques by the graceful ignorance of cosmic distance. And, and who's going to care anyway? Raki's nutrition companions and evening time mouth motion mutuals have completely ceased in their efforts to contact her. All personally carried devices have gone for days without so much as a phantom buzz, she thinks, with a kind of dim relief. Nothing much to miss here, she guesses. Or is she supposing? Well, either way, that's a sentiment that can fly in both directions. Unlike the ticket she's just purchased. A ticket held by an eager and trembling hand. The one-way earth ticket flimsy paper sharing in the tremors. The lightness of the paper in zero gravity is, well, nothing. It could just as well be a 10-ton boulder or a 30-kilogram suitcase packed to the brim with someone's life in material terms. Coincidentally, it's the latter that Raki grips in her other hand as she floats, physically and psychologically, towards the shuttle departure gate. It's a moon night like any other, currently in the process of passing by without much in the way of excitement. The Earth has set behind the lunar horizon, and out there, on the other end of the darkening tubes, there will be clusters of monotonous pseudo-discussion, interrupted only for the inverted pouring of watered-down spirits. She'll miss it, but not enough to affect decisions already made, and the consequent actions already in motion. Just one more tube junction to go now, and a crater has opened up in Raki's stomach. This is big. It's Earth, with no prospect of a return. And all for a man? She surprised. At herself. But the moon had never been a fit, now she thinks about it. The simple fact of her journey being for love almost proves Earth to be a more suitable location. It's the natural habitat of passion overcoming logic and glossing over imperfections. There isn't anyone of any sort of official status to be seen in the shuttle port. No passport needed for this journey. The Earth shuttles usually run in the dead of night, which probably has something to do with shame. Raki's not ashamed though, and if she's being honest, on scanning the waiting area before her, no one else seems to be either. It's likely, she supposes, that someone catching the one-way Earth shuttle doesn't have enough going for them to provide the societal counterweight required for shame to form. To feel shame is to possess stakes. Take the Moon Man in the corner, for instance, held down by a gravitational trench coat. Whatever shame he's felt in life has long since run its course as his stakes dried up. As far as Raki's concerned, her stakes haven't disappeared, but they have relocated. 
They lie on the other side of the shuttle door, which is now opening, beckoning her in. She obliges and finds a seat as far from anybody else as possible. It doesn't take long for the passengers to embark, being so few in number. The only sound is the outdated cabin music, a repetition of a light and obvious thirds arpeggio via the simplest of sine wave bloop tones. That, and not the music you're hearing at the moment, is the soundtrack to her departure from the moon. As it continues to play carelessly throughout the launch initialization sequence. There's no safety demonstration, the result of neglect no doubt, but also of a space crash's death guarantee. No amount of preparation could ready you for that sort of impact, Racky concludes, feeling a strange sense of reassurance. <laughs> 